morning, everyone. Needs to be a little higher. Is that better? Okay, great. Good morning. Well, it's my pleasure, my joy to open God's Word for you today. Our spiritual food as a church is God's Word. I, I hope that uh, those of you who've been coming to us for a while know that, and I want those of you who are new with us to know that. But by God's grace, I. I Hope that you will never be here on a Sunday when there's a sermon preached from this pulpit that is not straight from the Bible, that is not an explanation of what the text says and what difference it should make in our lives. We want to be a church that is centered on the Bible. Um, as Second Timothy three sixteen to seventeen says, this is all Scripture is breathed out by God. And that's a wonderful metaphor. It's as if God breathes out and His breath becomes the Scriptures themselves. The Bible is that much directly from God. And the verse continues, it says, And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So God teaches us, He changes us, and He equips us through the Bible. We don't need anything else. And our main diet as a church, so to speak, this, the Word of God is our food. Our main diet, so to speak, is what we call consecutive exposition from the Bible. That means that the majority of the preaching you'll hear from this pulpit will normally be us working our way through a book of the Bible, section by section, explaining it and applying it to our lives as we go. And there's a few benefits for that. For one thing, rather than just jumping from one of our favorite topics to another, we submit ourselves instead to hearing from the next section of God's Word, trusting that as our Creator and Father... God knows what we need to hear better than we do. And that we may even include, and that may even include, right, some topics that we would never have thought we particularly needed to hear ourselves. Another benefit to this approach is the opportunity that consecutive exposition gives us to see the flow, so to speak, of a biblical book. How the various parts fit together and build to emphasize, emphasize certain things and to make bigger overarching arguments through the book. Now last year we preached through the whole book of Philippians and today we'll start a new series preaching through the Gospel of Mark, doing consecutive exposition through the Gospel of Mark. So this is kind of an introductory sermon to this series so I wanted to start off by asking the question, why? Why Mark? Why is this the book that we've chosen to study next? Well, first of all, in your Bibles, there's several different genres of writing. Okay? And we want to grow in our skill in reading, understanding, and applying each of these different genres. Now, that's uh, you know, maybe a fairly technical word, but basically what we're just saying is that 
a letter like what we, what we studied last. Philippians was a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And as a letter, that reads a certain way and we understand it in a certain way and we can draw um, meaning and an application from that in a certain way. But narrative, like the Gospel of Mark is, is a little different. Narrative is essentially a story, telling a story. Okay? And how we read that and how we draw out of that what God wants us to understand and what God wants us to apply to our lives is a little different. Okay? Now, since we've studied an, an epistle, that's the, the technical term again for, for a letter in the New Testament, since we studied a letter last, I thought, okay, let's look at a narrative now. Now, most of our Bibles uh, are narrative. The four gospel books, the book of Acts, most of the Old Testament is narrative. And we want to grow in how we understand and interpret that. Secondly, we want to know Jesus better. We want to know Jesus better. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing, nothing more important than who Jesus is. There's nothing more important than us coming to see Him more clearly and know Him more deeply. Now, four books in the New Testament tell the story of Jesus' life on earth, His teaching, His miracles, His death on the cross, His, His resurrection. And these are the first four books in the New Testament, and they are called Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I wanted us to go through one of these books next to spend time week after week just looking at Jesus and getting to know Him more. And this will be beneficial for all of us, no matter how long we've been exposed to Christian truth. It will strengthen our faith in who Jesus is. It will help us evangelistically. See, one of the main goals of the Gospels is to show those who don't yet know and believe in Jesus who He is and to call them to faith in Him. So this will be a good series then for us to be able to talk with unbelieving friends, family members, co-workers, fellow students. This will be a good series for us to share with them. Further, the goal of our sanctification, the Bible is very clear, the goal of our sanctification is that we get conformed to the image of Christ. That we become like Jesus. And how are we going to become like Jesus if we don't know what Jesus is like? By knowing Him better, we have a clearer picture of who we are aiming to be like. And then looking at Jesus week after week will grow us, should grow us, in our amazement and our awe at who He is and what He's done for us. And then grow us, grow our love for Him. There's, as I said already, no more important subject. And we can always benefit from knowing Jesus better. Now, the four Gospels in the Bible, you might think, okay, what's the point? Why are there four Gospels? Well, they each look at Jesus' life from a slightly different angle. And emphasize slightly different themes. And each of those angles, each of those emphases are helpful and worthwhile. And there's two approaches to learning from the gospel, and both are valuable. We should do both. 
One of those is looking at what all four Gospels tell us about Jesus. So then that gives us the most complete picture, right? That gives us the most information about him. And then we look at all that information together and we try and have the most complete picture, the most, uh, yeah, the most detail filled in about Jesus. But it's also important to realize that if God wanted us, wanted that to be the only way we did this, he could have just given us one much longer, much more detailed gospel. But instead, he gave us four gospels. Okay? And you see, there's value at allowing each of these gospels, each of these books, to make their particular argument, to emphasize the particular themes that they are looking to emphasize. Because sometimes when you put all the information together, some of those particular uh, emphases that uh, these authors are looking to highlight, some of those things can be lost. Okay? So when we study the book of Mark, what we're predominantly going to be doing is we're going to be mostly just looking at Mark. We're going to be letting Mark drive home the particular points he wants to drive home about Jesus and, and, um, and, and not necessarily saying, okay, well now if we look at what John says, we look at what Luke says, we look at what Matthew says, then that most of the time the sermons will not, will not be like that. Most of the time the sermons are going to be just be focused on the text in Mark. Okay? Now occasionally we might take a step back and, and pull all the Gospels together and look at the fuller picture. But for the most part, we're going to be going about this just looking at the Gospel of Mark and letting the Gospel of Mark emphasize what it wants to emphasize about Jesus. All right. Secondly, by way of introduction, who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Well, I guess it's not that hard, right? It's the Gospel of Mark. Now, the thing is, though, is that the book itself doesn't actually identify its author. There's nowhere in the Gospel of Mark that tells us that John Mark is the one who wrote this book. But consistently uh, through church history, the testimony has been that John Mark is the author of this book, and that has been widely accepted for a long, long time. Now, who is John Mark? Um, well, most scholars are very happy to specify not just that somebody named John Mark wrote this book, but that the John Mark who wrote this book is the same John Mark who traveled with Peter and Paul on several of their missionary journeys and whose uncle was Barnabas, Paul's ministry partner, Barnabas. And we'll see later as we uh, study the book a bit more why that's actually a uh, pretty fascinating thing that, that John Mark should be the one who wrote this particular gospel. Secondly, not only did John Mark write this book, but it is important for us to remember that every book of the Bible has both a human author and the Holy Spirit. God was at work behind John Mark as he wrote this book. Okay? 
Now, you know, from a, the human perspective, you say, okay, he was close to Peter. Peter was an eyewitness. Peter was super close to Jesus. That's where he got most of his details. And I trust that that is how God worked. Okay? But at the end of the day, where our real confidence is, is not so much that uh, John Mark knew Peter very well, and Peter knew Jesus very well, and Peter was able to, to give John Mark all the details he needed. No, our, our, our biggest reason for confidence in the truthfulness of this account about Jesus is that the Holy Spirit was leading and guiding John Mark as he wrote. Second Peter 1 verses 20 to 21 says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Or as we already looked at from 2 Timothy 3.16, we believe that this book is breathed out by God. This is God's Word. And so we trust it wholeheartedly. What is the Gospel of Mark about? Well, the main theme... The main theme seems to me, seems to me the main theme is who is Jesus and what difference should that make? Who is Jesus and what difference should that make? Throughout the book of Mark, we'll see people asking, who, who is this? Who is this that can do these things? Who is this that teaches with this authority? Who is this who presumes to forgive sins? Who, who is this? See, the way Jesus conducts himself is not typical. And there are, are many things, right, that testify to the fact that he is unique and special and ultimately, right, God. So we'll see things also through the book. We'll not only see this question being asked, who is this? But we'll actually see various people giving their answer. Okay? So God himself tells us that this is his beloved son in whom he's well pleased at Jesus' baptism. God himself tells us who Jesus is at Jesus' transfiguration. Right? That's a, a big word, but basically at some point, and we'll get to it in the text here, Jesus reveals his glory, kind of peels, peels back, uh, yeah, almost, almost like Superman revealing his, 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 his superhero suits. Okay? Jesus reveals his glory to some of his disciples, and God testifies to who he is. We see demons saying, I know who you are. We see Peter testify, you are the Christ. And we see the centurion at Jesus' death on the cross. Surely this was the Son of God. Okay? It's everywhere through the, through the Gospel of Mark. Who is this and what difference should it make? And brothers and sisters, 
it should make all the difference in the world, right? All the difference in the world. Now, even though throughout this book, Mark is trying to get the reader to ask a question, who is this? And to answer the question, who is this? He actually gives us the answer right here in verse 1. Okay? Tells us right here in verse 1. He says, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're specifically going to look at three key terms in this first verse that helps us understand who Jesus is. And those terms are gospel, Christ, and Son of God. So first of all, the term gospel. Now, you know, the words are used in different ways, right? If I, if I talk to you about gospel, you might think I'm talking about gospel music, right? Uh, we've already talked about how the first four books of our New Testament are referred to as Gospels. Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Mark, Luke, John. And those, these books are essentially biographies of Jesus. Uh, biographies with, with a twist, for sure. They're, they're more than just biographies. They're preaching at us and they're, they're seeking to have us believe in Jesus and to commit to following Jesus. They're seeking to see our lives changed by Jesus. So they're certainly not just stories, just biographies. But that's not what Mark means here. He's not saying the beginning of my biography about Jesus. That's not what he means. Rather, see, because actually that, that, the idea of calling these books Gospels actually only came later. Okay? That actually only came later. So rather, we need to remember that this term gospel or good news, that's what the word gospel means, was used by Jesus himself and by Paul, Peter, author of the book of Hebrews, etc. It was used to describe, to kind of summarize their preaching about Jesus' life, who he was, what he accomplished through his life, death, resurrection, and the promise of his future return to establish God's reign. And of course, the call for sinners, therefore, right, to repent of their sins, put their faith in him and follow him. So they would summarize that as the gospel. This is our message. And through the preaching of this gospel then, this good news, Christianity is spreading. Wherever this message goes, we see people turning from their previous religions, from their former ways of life, and turning and devoting their lives to following Jesus. We see churches starting through an ever-increasing an ever larger area. And here, okay, if you think about being a part of the early church or living during those times, there isn't a New Testament yet. You just have your Old Testament. And now you start actually initially 
Some of these apostles, like Paul, they start writing letters to churches. Okay? And what are, they, what are they teaching these churches as they're starting these churches? They're teaching the Old Testament. They're showing people how Jesus was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And then they're actually teaching what Jesus taught them. Okay? But it's not yet in this form. And so now Mark comes and he, he writes a gospel. He writes an account of who Jesus is, what he did, what he taught, and why it matters. Mark writes a book here and he says, all this, this, this momentum, all this movement, people becoming Christians, churches started, all this growth, you know it's all about the spreading of this, this message well, what is this message? What's it all about? Here it is. Let me tell you. Here's, all, here's how all this began. Here's the content of what is bringing about all this new life, all this change. Now, further, there's at least two interesting backgrounds to this term good news, to this, this term gospel. And both of them had to do, have to do with an announcement about a king. In the Greek and Ro- Greek or Roman world at the time, this term of good news or gospel was used in a propaganda type way to announce the birth or ascension of a new emperor. So the idea was basically, okay, everyone, listen up. Got great news for you. Your life is about to change. Everything's about to get better for you. Because so-and-so has been born. Right? Because so-and-so is your new king. So the the idea then is rejoice that so-and-so is your emperor. Because he's going to be an incredible emperor. And you're going to just be so happy that he rules and reigns over you. But of course, right? Such announcements always promised far, far more than they delivered. It's propaganda. Every human king has failings. So, this then is a good news announcement that falls flat. But our gospel, the gospel that Mark is announcing about the arrival of this king. This is a true gospel. This is genuinely good news. This is an announcement of a king that we really should rejoice to have rule over us. It's not just talk. It's it's an announcement about the coming of one who really will bring about a new era and change everything for good. Right? What, what, did, what did you see on our, our poster for, for, for our Good Friday conference? The gospel changes everything. Right? The true gospel, the arrival of King Jesus, changes everything. And quite remarkably too, if you think about this, we need to realize just how bold the early Christians were in referring to their message as a gospel. They were unashamedly pointing people 
to real hope in a context, right, where there is an emperor. And they're saying, forget about him. Here's your king. Here's your hope. Here's, here's where you need to be rejoicing. Caesar doesn't offer you anything. Not really. They were unashamedly pointing people to the real king and true hope. Now secondly, a much older use of the term good news or gospel is found in the book of Isaiah over 700 years earlier. And I love how God does things like this. Over 700 years, years earlier, right? And especially in chapters 40 to 66, the, the kind of the last section of this book, we see, right, um, these, these prophecies and this, this, this term, good news, gospel, comes up again and again and again and again. And again, what does it have to do with? An announcement of a king and how him reigning makes all the difference. Isaiah 52 verse 7, just as one example, says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who brings gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. And because your God reigns, everything changes for good. This, 700 years earlier, is a real gospel announcement. A prophecy of a king who would come and change everything. Really, genuinely good news. One author trying to summarize all these references to good news in this prophetic vision we see in in these 26 chapters or so at the end of Isaiah puts it this way. This is how he describes this coming rain prophesied in Isaiah. Comfort and tenderness from God. The presence of God himself. Help for the poor and needy. The healing of blindness and deafness. The renewing of all things. The judgment of God's enemies. The forgiveness of sins. And the making of a covenant relationship with God's people. And again, right? Very importantly, why does all this take place? This all takes place because our God reigns. Next, let's consider how chapter 1 verse 1 here talks about Jesus being the Christ. Jesus being the Christ. I want to, you see, it's, uh, some of you, I, I, I guess, might not realize, certainly uh, many people out on the street would not realize that Christ is not Jesus' surname. Okay? It's a title. It's a title. So that's why I say the Christ. Okay? Um, and what, where, where does that come from? It's a transliteration 
of Christos, which is the Greek word for the Hebrew term Messiah, which again is another transliteration. What these words basically mean is anointed one. Okay, anointed one. And throughout the Old Testament, key people were anointed with oil as a sign of them having been specially selected by God to fulfill special roles for his purposes. And so we see this again and again with priests and we see it again and again with kings. Okay, those are the most prominent examples. And many Old Testament prophecies promise that a future king would come from the line of David. Okay, now again, I said we're mostly going to emphasize Mark. But if you look at Matthew and Luke, right, you see genealogies that show you that Jesus is from this line, right? From the line of David. Okay, so they emphasize that there's a coming king from the line of David. And this title of Messiah, right, when this is applied to Jesus, it's saying, this is that promised king. The true king who's come both to rescue and to reign. He is the promised one. Next, son of God, son of God. This again is a title that's loaded with expectation from the Old Testament. In the broadest sense, the Bible speaks uh, quite a bit of someone being a son of someone else when they emulate them, right? When they live like them. So as one example, in John chapter 8, verse 39, we see uh, in Jesus' interaction with some Pharisees, he, he answers, or rather they answer him, and they say, Abraham is our father. But then Jesus responds and says, if you were Abraham's children, now they actually are Abraham's descendants, right? So in that sense, they are his children. But in this sense, we're talking about, he says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. If you really were sons of Abraham, you would be living like Abraham. Continues in verse 44. Tells them who, whose father, who really is their father. He says here in verse 44. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And has nothing to do with the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies... He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Okay? So in this sense, to be a son of someone is to emulate that person. To do as he does, to be like him. And Jesus is the son of God. Nobody emulates God the Father like Jesus because Jesus emulates God the Father perfectly. He is perfectly pleasing to Him. He always, He tells us, He tells us, He always does His Father's will. He is like Him in every way. 
A more narrow way that we see, again, often in the Old Testament uh, that this father-son language is used is that Israelite kings were often referred to as the sons of God. And the reason for this is that um, kind of the picture here is that God is the ultimate king who rules over all. And then when they are serving as kings, they are sharing in their father's vocation. Right? So in the ancient world, it was typical. If my father is a carpenter, I'm going to be a carpenter. If my father's a baker, I'm going to be a baker. I learn my trade from him, and then I follow in his footsteps. So in that sense, the kings of Israel were referred to as sons of God. God is the king ruling and reigning, and they're following in his footsteps, fulfilling their father's vocation. So throughout this book, we see Jesus' authority, his authority as God's king. We see his authority over nature. We see his authority over sickness of all sorts. We see his authority over demons. We even see his authority over death itself. Okay, so, that's what we've said so far. In what sense is Jesus the Son of God? Well, he pleases and emulates and represents God perfectly. And then... He is God's king, wielding God's power and authority in that role. And then, as we'll come to see through the course of this book, there's also a third very important sense in which he is the Son of God. It's not just because he's a very extraordinary man fulfilling a very special role. It's because he is literally the Son of God. He is God, very God. He is God the Son. And we'll see more of these themes as we study the book. But here, Mark gives us help right at the start and points us towards what he wants us to see as we read through the gospel. Starts off basically saying, okay, here's the answer. Now I'm going to show you, I'm going to prove it, I'm going to argue it from every angle. And here's his goal, right? And this is our fourth point. What's the big question? Right? What's, what's Mark driving at? What do we need to be thinking about most of all? Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? The gospel is only good news because Jesus is who he says he is. Because he really is the Messiah. Because he really is the son of God. Because he really is the one true king. Because he really is God come to rescue and to reign. And he will establish that wonderful vision we see in Isaiah. One day, all the mess of this earth Right? All the mess brought about by sin, brought about by our rebellion against God, the true King. Right? Conflict, sickness, disabilities, tiredness, 
work being something that's difficult and hard instead of something that just brings joy. Interpersonal sin, death, pain of every sort. It's all going to get turned around. All of it under the rule and reign of King Jesus. But all of this is only available to those who recognize him as the king that he is. Who receive his rescue and bow to his reign. So, who do you say he is? Amen.